You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, June 5th. Dr. Minna, do you have any comments for today before we get going? Uh, nope, I'll just take questions. <laughs> okay, we'll jump right in then. Uh, first question. Hey, uh, uh, Michael, thanks for doing this. Sure. Um, so as my, uh, my, uh, my, my media company may indicate, I'm a sports writer, uh, and I'm working on a story about the grosser aspects of sports, spitting, licking, all that stuff, sweating, all the fluids of sports, and how they'll be affected by a return to play within the global COVID-19 pandemic. And I was wondering, as sports start to return, um, I suppose the question is, can they still spit? And, uh, and what are the other uh, challenges as far as bodily fluids and, uh, and the return to sports within a pandemic? Yeah, I, I think that um, the key thing with, uh, in particular, sports teams and others, um, uh, at least the professional sports teams, they will undoubtedly have the resources and uh, to allow themselves to get tested frequently. Uh, so I think the key thing there is not so much to worry about uh, things like spitting and, and during games. It's to make sure that everyone going into a game is not infected and, uh, and, and going into practice is not infected. And I think that um, these are groups of people who will undoubtedly sort of be interacting closely, whether that's during the game or, or surrounding the game. And, uh, and so I think that because of that, they are individuals or they're, they're, they're teams and populations that are, are liable to have um, a lot of spread should a virus uh, get introduced and somebody who's, uh, who's transmissible uh, get into the, that population. And so I think that for these teams to really move forward and ensure that they're all being safe, uh, that, that they just need to make sure that they're not infected uh, going into their practices and games. And that probably should ameliorate the need for even asking the question in, in many ways. Did you have a follow-up? Uh, no, I, actually my only follow-up would be, I've, I've talked to some other doctors who um, have, have uh, d discussed whether there are things that can be done within the scope of play to uh, c further reduce the possibility of transmission such as face shields and hockey and face shields and football and things like that. Is that, uh, is that a step too far or is that something that you think that uh, some leagues, particularly in contact sports, should uh, investigate? Oh, definitely. I think if uh, I wouldn't suggest that every soccer player goes and gets a helmet with a face shield, you know, but <laughs> uh, certainly if it's, if, if the basic uh, mechanism is already there to hold a face shield, uh, that would absolutely uh, reduce transmission. Remember that the whole purpose of the mask, for the most part, or one of the whole purposes, is just to just to just to slow um, the spread of these droplets to block them from moving forward. And the vast majority of that dispersion comes in sort of a direct line out of uh, out of the mouth or the nose. And so, certainly having some sort of plexiglass face shield, uh, I think, is a good investment. Um, I think a better investment is just to ensure that people going into the game are not shedding virus. Um, not, not a better investment. The face shield will be a cheap 
uh, and very doable investment if people are already wearing the helmets. But for for other sports where that's not the case, but there is potential contact like soccer, and I'm sure there are some others I'm not thinking of, um, you know, then I, I think that you just need to be really careful to, to ensure that the players are, are going into the game safe. Great, thank you very much. Sure. Next question. Uh, hi guys, thanks again for doing this. Uh, so yeah, I cover the automotive industry and a lot of the automakers called back uh, workers into their assembly plants last month. There's a lot of safety measures in place like temperature scanners and PPE, um, but some of the leaders are calling for rapid mass testing, uh, you know, for tens of thousands of auto workers uh, to further ensure their safety. So my question to you is, uh, where do we stand today in terms of developing and implementing such a system at, at that type of scale? And what are some of the challenges that it might take to get there? Sure. So I, I think with things like the auto workers and factory workers and other folks around, around the country, it's a slightly more difficult task. These are, these are huge numbers of people that do not necessarily have the kind of dollars per person that I was just discussing in terms of professional sports teams and things. Um, and, and the way that these individuals are dispersed is it's a little bit harder to envision them all getting extremely sort of routine testing daily or every three days or something along those lines. Um, and I, I think that testing is coming along very quickly. We will see tests that become cheaper. We'll see more point of care tests that become available. And, uh, and my hope is that in the near future, we'll even see tests that, uh, that are sort of very point of care antigen tests that maybe somebody gets a result about a viral infection right there at, on the spot within minutes. And if those can come, if those can be produced in mass and they can, uh, and they can get down to less than $5 a piece, then I think that you get into a range that's very reasonable uh, to assume that most people can get tested uh, twice a week, uh, for example. Um, but if all of the samples are having to get shipped out and it's $50 a test for PCR or something like that, I think that, um, that it's going to pose some huge logistical hurdles. So there's the testing, there's a very routine testing that, that you could envision doing. But then there's also a different approach, which is to take a step back and take a, take a view of it all more from a public health vantage point. And by that, I mean use tools of public health to try to monitor for outbreaks, but at the population level. And in this case, the population level might be auto workers uh, and, and other individuals like that. And you, you essentially can monitor people potentially using some combination of antibody testing, which is, uh, uh, which is very good for capturing uh, if you're just monitoring on a rolling basis, for example, you can find when an epidemic is emerging or an outbreak is emerging, and then you can kind of go in with the artillery and, and, and you know, really bombard everyone with PCR testing and viral testing on a, on, a, on a sort of very frequent basis. And that could, some combination there can actually serve to be a very powerful tool to monitor uh, epidemics when we look at really the long term. So it might be that when we first get into the fall, we'll be really focused on very intense sampling. But if this goes on for, for two or three years, then we really have to start thinking what's practical 
as a marathon. And um, so far, all of our, our all of our thinking and our policies and our suggestions for the fall um, by policymakers and and scientists has been assuming that this is a sprint. Uh, but the more we learn about this virus, and the the more we learn about just how few people have actually been infected uh, overall as a fraction of the population, we we have to look at this as a marathon and. In that regard, we have to start thinking about what are some smarter, more efficient ways that won't be perfect, but they'll be good to, if your goal is to stop an outbreak, not to stop every last case, but to stop an outbreak, then we can really change our sampling scheme and, in, and have some combination of antibody testing, symptomatic uh, surveillance, and then of course, viral testing when an outbreak is detected. And I, I think that those are gonna be the smart ways to go into the future. Uh, I appreciate that. Just as a, a quick follow-up, is there any way to put a timetable on when we might be able to have that sort of almost instantaneous, uh, you know, widespread testing? Are we talking months, weeks? Uh, I think realistically months. We'll have some prototypes that become widely distributed. Uh, technically speaking, these are these types of tests can be produced in the millions pretty easily, and uh, and could be deployed. You know, I envision a world where everyone has a little carton of tests that they can go purchase, or their employer gives them, or their school gives them, whatever it might be. And every second or third day, you just test yourself. And if people around you uh, have become infected, then you test yourself more frequently. So I, I hope that we will get there within um, within the matter of uh, of a, a couple of months, maybe maybe a little bit more than that by the time the FDA is is done re reviewing everything. But it's not going to be a year from now. I think we'll see it in a, in months. Thank you. Next question. Thanks very much. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering what. Do you make of the uh, shape of uh, infections across the country now? There isn't the spikes that some people, some models were pointing to in early May with reopening, but we're still having a lot of infections every day. Uh, you know, how, how do you see like what's happening and what does that say about the effectiveness of social distancing versus warm temperatures? You know, how do we, we uh, unscramble the omelet here to tell people what's working and what, what isn't? Yeah, well, we don't have uh, we don't have the counterfactual in real life to look at, and um, so it's very difficult to know what exactly is driving the patterns today. We have seen some small amounts of evidence in the U.S. and then others from elsewhere that reopening has been somewhat associated with increased cases, uh, but we we do have this competing model where we, on the one hand, we have reopening. And, and protests and, and other areas where people are really coming into contact much more readily today than uh, three weeks ago or four weeks ago. And, um, and at the same time, we're going into the summer. And if you look at the seasonality of this virus, uh, the, the virus is usually from around January uh, on down into June or July, it's just uh, this seasonal viruses, not, not this novel one, but seasonal coronaviruses, which are very similar in, in genetic makeup to this one. Uh, they tend to just decline, 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 more or less linearly with each passing uh, week. 
from around January through uh, through July or August. And so we might be um, getting a little bit of, of safety. And, and this has always been in the discussion you know, for months now we've been talking about is the weather going to improve uh, the outcomes during the summer. And I think there's good reason to believe that it will limit spread uh, to some extent during the summer. Uh, and then, and so it's hard to know exactly you know, why we're not seeing uh, big, big bumps. Is, has something changed with the virus or the population that's preventing it? Or is it uh, just still a lag to indicate we're not actually seeing it yet, but we will in two weeks? Because uh, a lot of cities are, even the ones that are opening are just starting to really, like people are still being cautious. Um, is it weather that's causing the decline? Or is it masks? A lot of places people are still wearing, even if they're going out more, they're wearing masks. And we're seeing that with the protests. A lot of protesters are wearing masks. And that's, um, that's good. You know, I, I think that that alone, that one piece, mask wearing alone, could have um, pretty profound effects on the transmissibility of the virus. But it's not easy to tease these things apart, at least not within one year. If we had multiple years of time series data, uh, then we could really probably do a lot more. Right now, we're just trying to aggregate the data at, a, at essentially cross-sections of time and try to look at sort of what's happening. Um, my concern in this regard is uh, if weather is playing a central role to sort of buffer um, the spikes that we might anticipate uh, from reopening, uh, I'm very concerned that come October or November, we usually see coronaviruses go from extraordinarily low levels in August to uh, very high levels uh, some years uh, in throughout October, September and October, November. And so I, I do have a concern that the, this isn't quite the question you asked, but that the, the buffered sort of effects that we might be seeing because of weather and potentially because of mask wearing might get the community and the population to um, become much more laxed and assume that this virus is just kind of going away on its own. And then I think myself and many people are extremely concerned that come October when we normally see coronaviruses sort of burst back uh, into the population that this could uh, do the same and, and really hit us very hard. Um, but unscrambling the omelet is a very difficult thing at this point. Just to follow up though, it sounds like you're saying that come September, October, we still want to have answers to those questions. We'll still be operating with a great deal of uncertainty. Yeah, that's unfortunately what is uh, what I think now that the Southern Hemisphere might be able to give us some of those answers as we're watching what's happening there. Uh, but uh, but absolutely, I think we this is our first our first uh, year going through this, and so we don't have a lot of the answers we we wish we did and. Um, a lot of the effects might, are happening all simultaneously. And until we have longer durations of time uh, over which we can explore these, these types of things, we end up um, a little bit in a position where it's a little bit difficult to tease apart what exactly are the drivers of both blunting epidemics or causing epidemics uh, and outbreaks to occur. Thank you very much. Next question. Hi, thank you. Um, just one quick question. I, I'm, I'm working on a story right now about uh, the availability of the tests as they exist now. Um, basically, the community hospitals in Massachusetts, some of the smaller community hospitals are telling me that they're having a hard time getting access to tests um, and they're having to postpone surgeries. 
Uh, they're having to hold uh, patients in the ER who are psych patients for, you know, up to two days while they wait for test results to come from outside uh, reference labs. Um, at the same time, I could just drive up to a CVS clinic and, and get a test right now. Um, and I'm just wondering about if you can speak at all about how the, the distribution, the allocations of these tests is being handled right now when uh, some of the larger labs, uh, the quests of the world, the CVSs have seemingly you know, uh, unlimited tests while these small community hospitals that are actually struggling to, to, to get patients in um, uh, and, and keep their businesses essentially open are, are, don't have access to these tests. Uh, a number of them uh, are, are saying that, that that's a, a problem that they're having. Can, can you address that at all? And, and, and basically, it seems like they're saying they're not being prioritized by the companies that are that are selling these tests. Yeah, that is um, that's absolutely correct. Uh, unfortunately, and, and it's something you know I've been trying to stress here and there all along is that testing is still not widely available um, and and distributed to to everyone. It's it's very bizarre, um, but the reason is these small hospitals. I've and a lot of them are coming to me personally and to some other colleagues, asking for help with getting tests performed and and just getting swabs and all of this. Um, the reason is we have a privatized health uh, system, and that means that they are that there are a lot of contracts involved. And so when these mega labs that can process millions of tests, you know, every night, not, not coronavirus tests every night, but, um, you know, across the whole spectrum, when these massive labs go to um, go ha have all the tests available and then CVS goes and asks to contract with them, that's a big, that's a big win for both. There's a, those are two massive players and the contracts are, are nice between them. Versus if you have, uh, you know, or, or even it goes even a step further to really the manufacturers of these tests, the Roches and, and Abbott's and, and everyone else, um, Hologic and Cepheid, you know, they're going to prioritize the bigger contracts that they view as priority um, over individual labs that might get less, um, less throughput, for example, on each test. And so they'll, they'll be smaller contracts overall. So this is, uh, it's kind of no different than how our health insurance works, where the bigger you are, the more leverage you have over the health insurance companies. Uh, it happens in this case with testing and, and the, 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 the bigger guys tend to win out. And it's a real, it's a serious problem because we do, um, as you say, we've now have made it accessible to get um, outpatient testing when it's still not necessarily accessible in a lot of hospitals around this country. Uh, at least not in a time frame that's reasonable for the hospitals. And I would propose that, you know, if somebody who needs a drive-through test is is getting a drive-through test, um, they're probably not as high priority as somebody who needs to go in and get their gallbladder taken out or something like that, and, and needs to be tested before they go into surgery. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that there's a role to try to create a discussion where, where there's more load balancing on the, on the way that the tests are being distributed, or there could be a role for actually having increasing numbers of partnerships where smaller hospitals actually partner with the CVSs down the road and say, hey, can you allocate uh, 30 tests a day at your CVS for us to send our patients to before they arrive for their outpatient surgery? 
And, um, you know, I think that that's not an unreasonable thing. It's just, uh, it's just more contracts and, and it's how does a small hospital, you know, build a contract with a behemoth like CVS uh, in any sort of efficient way? How do those things get set up? They're very, very difficult. And a lot of hospitals aren't well connected to, to be able to do this. Um, and I don't think at the moment that there's a great solution uh, as, you know, short of people really paying attention to these small hospitals and prioritizing them. Did you have a follow-up? Yes, I do. Thank you so much. I, I, uh, to, to actually quickly, uh, I think some might argue that there's a place here for regulation as well. Um, is, does the, it doesn't appear though that the state DPH or federal uh, officials have any role really in, in the allocation of these tests and prioritizing them to, to hospital patients that uh, are undergoing surgeries over the, the so-called worried well driving into a CVS? Uh, that's been a hard discussion. I mean, the, there was some uh, uh, initially at the federal level and, and probably still with some of the tests, they were, the feds were um, certainly taking some control over where uh, the initial Roche assays went and things like that. And so there was initially some effort to um, try to prioritize in some systematic way uh, where the tests went. At the state levels within each state, I think that that is not being done. Essentially, I, I can speak from our own experience, which is we we do uh, all of our ordering of tests is uh, directly with the with the vendors, and so that's it's just not a discussion now. Where the regulation could come in is that the the I think it, rather than going to each of the hospitals and the people requesting the tests or or buying the tests to perform. It would be on the manufacturers, and you say you know these tests need to be performed, uh, or you allocate the actual resources that the, that are needed for the testing. But then that leads to a whole other set of issues because there there's a lot of ways to do these tests. So there's no central place to even do the allocation of resources. Um, in in particular, you know, so some labs have gone out of their way in order to get out of the normal um, supply chains. Uh, early on, so that they weren't, um, so that they that they didn't have to deal with sort of not getting the tests in time for their constituents, and so I think it would be a very tricky thing, given our framework and our healthcare system, to actually try to regulate it. I uh, don't disagree, though. I think that there is a huge role for regulation here, um, because you know testing. I don't know if we want to call it a human right, but it certainly should be a right in the time of a, of a public uh, epidemic. Everyone should have equal access to tests uh, or some, some well thought through, um, whether it's equal or, or weighted based on some risk profile, for example. Um, that would be, I think, something that, that would be useful. Uh, but so far, we don't really see that. It's sort of every man for himself. You said you had another follow-up? Yes, thank you very much. Just one quick follow-up. Another thing that I'm looking at right now is uh, also having to do with the availability of tests relates to um, the state order in Massachusetts uh, requiring uh, on-site testing at nursing homes. Um, there are uh, a number of people who live in independent living facilities in, in the state who are saying, hey, uh, 
we need to be included in that order. Essentially, that it's it's an arbitrary distinction. Uh, there's some facilities where one end of the hall is uh, is sort of more of a nursing home or uh, facility. Uh, and the other end is is more independent living, and, and the distinction is that the independent living just has a kitchenette, you know. I mean, uh, but it's the same building, and and some of the patients uh, or the people who live there are getting uh, tests while others aren't, and they're asking the state to please expand this order to include the independent living as well. Um, and I just was wondering if that's something you could reflect on um, uh, that distinction and and whether or not um, it's important to extend the testing order uh, with the National Guard showing up and doing tests to include independent living facilities. Yeah, I mean, the, the tests are now, um, that baseline testing is now complete uh, in the state. Uh, so I guess the question is, should they kind of do another round of that, if you will, with um, senior living. And I, I, I certainly agree that to a large extent it is arbitrary. Um, uh, it's one bucket to work on, uh, one bucket that you can sort of focus on and make a policy around. And um, you know, I think that baseline testing alone, really this has to be follow-up testing. This needs to be um, a series of, of testing programs that um, utilize, again, both antibody testing as well as viral testing um, and on an ongoing basis. And senior living centers should absolutely be a, a part of that. Um, there's a lot of questions at the moment surrounding sort of who pays for it, where does, like, who runs these programs? Our country isn't usually set up to run programs like this. It's, uh, there's very few examples where, where it's being happened, where that's happening, you know, maybe the VA and, and a few other hospital systems like that. But in general, we're, we're private, um, you know, lab testing is usually done in some sort of private uh, healthcare system. Uh, so the, the, I guess the point there is it's, it, there's just a, a lot of questions that surround how to practically make this happen who should be prioritized, who should be making decisions about who should be prioritized. There's a, a lot of other um, groups that maybe should be, and, and will a single baseline test actually tell you much? I don't really think a single baseline test tells much. Uh, it's more, uh, but, but longitudinal sampling over time can be used for outbreak detection. Um, uh, I think the whole system just needs to change. You know, we should, uh, we should, uh, have a, a lot more testing available. We should be increasing the way that testing can become performed, and, and that's changing today. Uh, not today as in this current day of June 5th, but uh, in general, it's, we're moving to self-collected swabs are becoming more and more uh, readily um, approved and available uh, in terms of, so that alone will really help testing be rolled out. Uh, my hope is that we won't need the National Guard to go in and do this testing if we can uh, pro create programs, maybe utilizing pooled testing. So you take uh, 10 people living in, uh, on the same hallway in a senior living facility or in the same set of uh, condos or something, and you uh, swab all of them or you ask all of them to, to swab themselves, submit uh, their swab in a, in, a, in a capsule or a tube, and then all those get pooled together and, and tested together as a pool, for example. And you kind of can go and do long-term monitoring of outbreaks that way. I think that that would be a, a decent way to go. Um, 
It's just not tenable, though, to have nasopharyngeal swabs being performed on Efron on an ongoing basis with the National Guard. That was an extraordinarily um, difficult and expensive endeavor uh, to, to get that done for the nursing homes alone. And the senior living facilities, I believe, are, are a larger cohort of people. Um, so hopefully it will move to self-collection self of swabs and testing. And, and my hope is that the finances will, will be figured out either through um, government funds or, or health insurance or, or CMS reimbursements. Uh, and we won't have to have National Guard running these programs. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Next question. Oh, she emailed this in to me. Now that it appears to be much easier to obtain a diagnostic test, what is your sense of the turnaround time for these tests and whether anything can be done to shorten the time between collection and a result? Yeah, so the, I, I think if you're sending the samples to a laboratory, then there's always gonna be a delay built into that and that's just physically transport. These things can't move through the telephone lines. Um, so I think distributing the tests, having them uh, being available, for example, at CVSs and Walgreens and Targets and Walmarts, you know, anywhere where there's pharmacies, for example, you could envision that testing could become available where people walk in. And that's happening, of course. Um, really rolling that out more uh, to, to, to more locations around the country, I think, could improve turnaround time tremendously. Um, but the moment you have to put something into the mail or uh, as a courier service, then it, then it, it becomes, uh, there's a, there's a built-in delay immediately. The laboratories performing the tests have certainly gotten, uh, as both the volume of tests being requested is sort of, uh, the, the number available is going up, the number of requests is generally going down, and the throughput is therefore increasing because uh, the systems are now kind of getting ramped, they're, they've been continuously getting ramped up and they're um, sort of running at full, full speed. And so, um, so there's not a ton more that the labs will necessarily do to really reduce the, the duration of time. Uh, a lot of it is, is in the sort of transport. And so the closer you can get the test to the person, the better. And that's why I'm a big advocate of things like the Abbott ID Now instrument and some of these other uh, point of care instruments that are very good uh, and can be placed in, in different um, locations uh, in a point of care way. And, and hopefully the, the best thing will be that the pregnancy test model for the viral testing will become available. Great. Um, her next question is, if a diagnostic test is taking up to 48 hours or 72 hours from collection to result reported, what effect does this have on containment and the efforts like contact tracing? Massive, uh, massive problems. Uh, so it's, uh, we've been modeling, we've been building a lot of mathematical models to explore this particular question. And what we find is that uh, the longer the, that just having a 24, 48 hour delay uh, really undermines the, the whole program of testing. Even if you're testing sort of every two days, having that delay will really cause um, problems in containment and control. Uh, because most of this transmission happens when your titers are very high. And so usually that's, if somebody's going to be positive and is about to, and is sort of on the way up with viral titers, then by the time they get the results back, they might have even they might have had a full two days of peak viral transmission um, without knowing it, uh, given how many asymptomatics there are. 
So uh, again, the, the closer you can get the test to the individual and temporarily get the time down uh, is, is much better. How close are we to having rapid testing be widely available? And what are the current barriers to making this reality across the country? Well, again, I think that we might start to see these point of care, uh, these point of care tests that are kind of the pregnancy test model. My hope is in the next couple of months, we'll, we'll start to see the first crop of them be, um, become available. They won't, they probably won't be widely, widely available. The, the question will be, can, you know, can the, can these companies produce hundreds of millions of them in a very short amount of time? I think that will be difficult. Um, but you know, we're, we're seeing different instruments come out um, that are improving access. We're seeing uh, more little sites of collection sites and sampling sites be developed. So I think that some combination of these pregnancy test models coming out in the next few months and, uh, and increased access to point of care testing in drive-throughs and things like that, I hope will, will, will overall increase access. And then of course, Getting back to that first or second question, getting these uh, point of care devices into um, smaller hospitals will be crucial. And you know, one thing that the hospitals could leverage is maybe they could actually themselves host um, uh, drive-through sites and things like that, and and maybe gain more uh, more leverage because they can put in larger orders with with the companies and things like that. So my hope is over the next few months we'll see it. And and what I really hope is that by fall that we have testing just much more widely and readily available. Uh, next question. Hello, hi, I'm back. Dr. Mina, hello, nice. Um, so I have um, three questions uh, based on uh, the answer you gave, you gave to uh, the previous question. So um, I would like to know why um, um, public, public authorities are not changing the programs in order to implement the epidemiological surveillance tools that the UL researchers are proposing, like combination of uh, antibody and uh, PCR viral test, why this is not happening in practice? Second question, since uh, uh, some of those tests, like ser serological and PCR tests, uh, sometimes prove to, be, to provide um, uncertain results in terms of uh, uh, exceeding uh, positive, uh, I mean, positive, uh, uh, to virus, or uh, I mean, uh, mostly the the the, the, the cheap uh, test. Uh, I guess they, they, they will have a lo lower sensibility to and a, a higher margin of a virus. So, why uh, governments should invest now in those tools? While actually, in a few months, new tools, uh, improved tools might, might be available. So, that would be a kind of uh, maybe waste of resources now. Uh, and the third, if you think that uh, the, all these kind of tests or a test sampling or sampling test <laughs> should be mandatory at, uh, and at which uh, uh, geographical resolution at uh, district, district level or blocks level, or even a uh, or a shops level or whatsoever? Yeah, well, I'll start with talking about the technology. Um, so the American or the, the global public um, really did, most people before this pandemic were not familiar with testing and they weren't familiar with the term pcr or antibody testing serology and now we're finding that people are becoming increasingly familiar with it uh, uh, but what that means is that when people first when this virus started to emerge the test of choice and, and out of necessity was really viral testing and um 
And so that was what most people sort of went with and, and started to understand that viral testing is absolutely essential, and it is. It is the crucial tool during the outbreak. And then serology came around, and a lot of people said, well, why serology when you can test straight for the virus? Well, the reason you do serology, is an, which is antibody testing in this case, uh, is because it gives you a whole history of somebody's in, infection. And so I, the way that I think about this is, uh, imagine you have a hurricane, and that hurricane is sitting at the tip of Florida, um, hitting Miami. You know, if you're just, if you're only seeing the hurricane hitting Miami, and you don't know anything else about the trajectory that that hurricane has taken to get to Miami, you don't know whether you need to start putting resources in Louisiana, because the hurricane might keep going through the state, or if you need to put resources in North Carolina. And the reason I'm saying that is virus testing is a lot like just seeing the hurricane. You're sitting there in the middle of it, and you're seeing what's happening right there on the ground. Antibody testing gives you the whole trajectory of the hurricane. It lets you know what the path is of that. And so you can start to allocate resources in, in more efficient and better ways if you can start to project where this virus is going next, then uh, in the same way that weather systems can now project where storms are going, you can project where the virus is going. And antibody testing helps you do that. It also helps you to monitor for new outbreaks because you don't run the risk of missing somebody very much. If somebody becomes positive on the viral test, they might become negative six days later. And if you if you test them seven days later, you might have completely missed the fact that they were ever positive. But if you test them 10 days later, up through a year later, they'll have always been, they'll stay positive. So it becomes a very powerful tool to be able to monitor for viruses because the signal stays with somebody over a long, long duration of time. Uh, and, and so the, the point is you can actually do a lot of public health and epidemic modeling to make projections of what populations are going to get hit the hardest, where should you allocate resources, and part of that is where should you really ramp up PCR testing, and maybe where do you not need so much PCR or viral testing, and, and that can help policymakers decide how to allocate these resources. Um, so I think that antibody testing needs to be part of the discussion and part of the programs for a sustainable public health monitoring system. And we actually have a paper coming out um, next week that discusses this in the context of uh, thinking about the viral testing with or antibody testing as sort of a, a weather system for viruses. Um, going to the technology, there's been a lot of discussion uh, about, um, about these antibody tests not being accurate. Uh, but in general, that was a lot of these point-of-care instruments that came around first, these little plastic things, they generally are not as accurate, and some of them were really quite off. Uh, I have a whole box of them sitting in my house, and they're all just, they're, they're all falsely negative. Um, so they're, so they, they, the proteins on them must have unfolded. Um, so they're not good tests. But that's not to say that there are no good tests. In fact, most of the laboratories that are running these antibody tests now are using very, very accurate tests, 99.5% specificity, near 100% sensitivity after two weeks of infection. So these are very good tests, and, uh, and they can be very useful. We just have to be, we have to 
remember that these are, are laboratory-based assays and they should probably be used as such and have the sample sent to the lab. And in particular with antibodies, it's not usually, uh, a day isn't going to make a difference because the reason for doing antibody testing uh, is, is different than the reason for doing viral testing. So the nice thing is you have time on your side where you can send an antibody test out for testing and get it back a day later or two days later. And it's not going to make a huge difference because it's more used for forecasting and understanding the population sort of risk patterns rather than sort of um, um, keeping the, the outbreak right there at the source contained, which is really the role of viral testing. I, so, uh, yeah, as the follow-up, actually, going back to the first question, uh, uh, what since, uh, you think? I mean, you, you think that you believe that this is very, it's a very important way to do the, the outbreak surveillance. So wh why uh, government and or public authorities are not, I mean, changing programs in a way uh, in a way that uh, you wish? Wh wh why they, they are not doing that in practice? Yeah, uh, I I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, if you had asked me um, five months ago, or Wow, this virus is going on for five months. So ask me, <laughs> if you asked me eight months ago, um, you know, do, do I think that if a new virus emerged, would zero surveillance be a, a, an important piece of the efforts early on? I would have said absolutely. Uh, I think that we, we should be starting monitoring now and it should just be ongoing all the time in our communities. We should be we should be offering antibody tests to anyone who wants to know and then using those same blood spots, for example, to be testing for other viruses in the background in an anonymous way, just to know sort of what the background load of viruses are in the population. Um, the reason I think that it's not being used right now is, um, is again, because all of the discourse uh, early on in this pandemic has been about testing for the virus. And that's because we came into the virus in um, crisis mode. The whole, the whole um, uh, effort so far has just been to put out the fires, not to prevent the fires. And antibody testing helps you prevent and, and slow the fires and mitigate them over, uh, over a surveillance program. But when you're in the midst of a fire, you really need to be using viral testing. And, and I, I think that people are going to come around, I think in the next month or so, we will probably see a change in the national discussion about serology as people start to realize, okay, there are bad tests and there are good tests, and there's reasons to do serology and there's reasons to do virology. I think that um, programs will come about where all of a sudden people start saying, oh yeah, there is actually a good use for it. But there's just been so much attention paid so far to the viral testing that that's where everyone's mind is. Most of the people making decisions haven't ever had to really think about this in the United States anyway. We don't normally have to do uh, outbreak control and surveillance in the way that a lot of developing countries do. But zero surveillance, serological surveillance has been a crucial part and a keystone of most, uh, most epidemic control and surveillance programs around the world in developing countries you know, for decades. And that's because uh, it's the right tool for, for ongoing surveillance. Um, but that discussion hasn't really made its way into the public discourse nor the policy discourse here, just because I think it's just been such a, 
uh, the discussion has been so overwhelmingly surrounding viral testing that it hasn't, there hasn't really been a room for it. Um, I do think now that uh, the summer is upon us and we might see fewer and fewer cases over time, uh, it will give a little bit more room to breathe and think through long-term solutions. And at the same time, we're going to see antibody testing getting ramped up and becoming available where it wasn't available early on either. And once that becomes more uh, out there and uh, some of us, I think, are really working hard to, to try to make it known what the advantages are, where, where serological tools can really be used uh, for ongoing surveillance, I think that the tune will change and, and the discussion will move a little bit more towards it for the long term. Uh, and so we're, we just have to get out of crisis mode first. So the last question was, uh, do you think that uh, this uh, test sampling should be mandatory at, uh, at which geographical scale? Which is the geographical scale, which is really the minimum required to, to, so to, to monitor outbreak beforehand? Yeah, that's a hard question. Should mandatory testing be, be made available? I think the only way that mandatory testing could be made available, first and foremost, is you have to have it freely available and accessible. If you're going to mandate it, then it has to be free and it has to be accessible. Um, the next step is to decide, should it be, uh, is it right to do? Um, I think that there are other policies that can be made. Uh, you know, if I, I am, I feel very strongly that we should have different tiers of risk at the a population level, um, viral activity and risk to individuals. And so what I think is we should have some monitoring systems set up, which are probably serologically based, um, but, but maybe also uh, uh, viral testing uh, as well. And these should be uh, observing and looking and monitoring for any sense of outbreaks in communities. If an outbreak is recognized to be beginning, then maybe mandatory testing or some frequent testing becomes readily available for everyone. Uh, and otherwise, you just sort of use your sentinel people to, to try to serve as some sort of uh, uh, outbreak monitoring system. And, uh, and we can kind of crowdsource the, the efforts. Once an outbreak starts, then maybe if you want to go to work, you have to get tested on a, on a frequent basis. Or if you want to go to class, you have to be tested. And if you choose not to, then you have to work from home or you have to take class from, from your dorm room or whatever it might look like. So I think there's some room for that. But in general, I'm not a proponent of mandatory testing of everyone because I don't think it's reasonable. I don't know how it could really be rolled out. But I am a huge proponent of voluntary testing and crowdsourcing so that every person who wants to be can serve as sort of a sentinel for their community. And if you build up enough of those people, you can actually have a very good and robust surveillance program. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you, Dr. Minna, for uh, speaking today. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Uh, no, thanks everyone for tuning in. This concludes the June 5th press conference.